We continue today in our Lenten sermon series titled Lent with Luke. Each Sunday during this season, we are visiting a different story from the Gospel of Luke, a story that moves us with Jesus through that time as he heads towards Jerusalem. And with each story, we wonder together what word there might be that can shape and direct us on our journeys this Lent. Two Sundays ago, we began with the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and asked how his identity as a beloved child of God helped sustain him in that experience and how our identities as beloved children might sustain us. Last week, we considered a story from later on in Luke's gospel where Jesus comes face to face with the danger, the very real danger of the journey that he is on, and yet he persists. And we wondered how that story might aid us in persisting in our faith. Today we turn to a different story, a particular kind of story, a story that Jesus loved to use, a way rather of telling stories that Jesus loved to use. And Luke in particular lifts up over and over throughout his gospel called a parable. Now, if you all are like me, parables often land you in one place or another. You either land in the camp with parables where you want them, and they often are reduced to the form of a children's story, essentially, an easy takeaway from it that you can then go and apply to your life, or closer to where I often find myself, they are so confusing They are so sometimes out there that you don't even know where to begin with them. Last fall, our young adult, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, I don't know what elder, we attach a lot of numbers to it, our our younger adult class, they did a study in the fall using a book by the professor and teacher, a Jewish woman named Amy Jill Levine. She's a professor of New Testament at Vanderbilt's Divinity School. She wrote a book about the parables, and in it, she offers a different way to engage the parables. She writes that we today might be better off thinking less about what the parables mean and more about what they can do. How the parables can remind, provoke, refine, confront, disturb us. She points out that the original hearers of the parables were Jewish people, just like Jesus. And Jewish people knew then and now that parables and the tellers of parables were there to prompt them to see the world in a different way to challenge, and at times, to indict. Friends, let us hear now these words from the Gospel of Luke, the 13th chapter, where Jesus is on a journey and where Jesus tells a parable. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. 
But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or, Jesus says, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And when he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any, so he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and have not found any. Cut it down. Why should this tree use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, the gardener, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it, And fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Friends, these two are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O God, your ways are not our ways, and so we pray this day that whatever way we entered into this sanctuary, you might send us home by another way. O God, send your spirit now that this old story, this this parable that confronts and, and confuses and indicts, that it might speak to us words that are fresh for the living of these days. Indeed, O God, we pray that through the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight, that they might be pleasing to you, for you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Evan Moore grew up one of nine children in North Dayton, Ohio. North Dayton is one of those classic examples of a post-war, white flight, post-industrial, economic depression kind of neighborhoods. It's a rough part of town. It's not an easy place to grow up. Whenever you hear North Dayton mentioned in the news or anywhere else, it's usually used in sentences that also include phrases like high crime and run down. Evan and his siblings were raised in that neighborhood by a single mother in Section 8 housing. They moved around several times. The biggest home anyone can remember them living in was three beds, one and a half baths, nine children, single mother. Might explain why Evan wasn't necessarily the easiest of teenagers all the time. People remember him as being very shy, particularly around new faces, and he could, in the way teenagers can, be rather rude as well to the adults around him. He was great at math, struggled in reading. Some think that maybe he he lived and learned, particularly in adolescence, with an undiagnosed learning disorder. But something, something was there. Something, there was something in Evan. Take, for example, the fact that Evan and his brother, 
throughout high school, they would wake up a few times a week at about 5 a.m. They take a shower, they get dressed, they go out to the street corner. There aren't school buses in the Dayton public school system, so they would wait for the city bus, the RTA. You ever waited on a corner in Dayton, Ohio in January? But they would do it. They would get on that bus and they would drive it across the river into downtown. They'd switch buses. They'd get deposited in the general vicinity of their high school and they would still walk about a half mile to get there. It took them about an hour and a half to get from their home to school, 5 a.m. They'd get there, though, before school started so that they could participate in the ROTC drills. Something, something was there. But the world, the world around Evan, the thing they thought most when they saw him was North Dayton. The world, the system, the community around him didn't seem to see much possibility of fruit in someone like Evan. In fact, so few of Evan's classmates in high school went to college that the guidance counselor in that school really didn't have any wisdom to share with him about how you go about applying for college when he inquired about it. No one in his family had ever gone to college, so they had no idea what to tell him when he inquired about it. He was living in a system that seemed prepared to just write him and, and others like him off. It's as if The system was set up to say at a certain point, there's no need to try any harder with this one. No need to try anything more. It's almost like you can hear the voice of that gardener. Cut it down. No need to waste any more good soil on someone, on someone's kids like like this. Just cut it down. There are a lot of people who live that script in our world today. There are a lot of people like Evan and his family who are stuck in in generational poverty. People who live in neighborhoods like North Dayton where they lack access to food. You ever heard the phrase food desert? That's another one that could go with North Dayton. They lack access to to adequate education. It's hard to pull yourself up by the bootstraps when no one's ever given you boots to begin with. There are a lot of people who live each day with the reality of discrimination, both implicit and explicit, based on the color of their skin, the clothing they wear, the beliefs they adhere to. There are a lot of people who are labeled unreachable, hopeless, fruitless, you might say. But at least that's not us, right? I mean, look around where, where we live. Look at the abundance and the beauty of our neighborhood. Hmm. It's funny, I was reading this week a commentary by guy named George Buttrick. He taught at Vanderbilt, and when I was at Vanderbilt, I would study in Buttrick Hall, and I was convinced until this week that it was named after George Buttrick. I found out it was someone else. A little disappointing. (laughs) George Buttrick, though, back in the 1920s, 30s, he was one of the preeminent pastors in the Presbyterian denomination. He 
was called at the age of 32 to be the senior pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City, one of the largest churches in the nation at that time. He later went on to be the pastor and preacher to Harvard University later in his life. He came and helped to revitalize the spiritual life of that university. He wrote a a commentary on the parables, and I opened up to this particular parable on the fig tree. And the thing that George Buttrick pointed out is he said, this fig tree, it had everything. It had everything a fig tree could possibly need or want. For starters, it was planted in a vineyard, which in and of itself suggests that it was planted on one of the sunniest slopes there. There were no other trees in all likelihood that were around it to cast down shadows or crowd in on its branches. It it rose above the vines, the garden beneath it. He has this great line. He says, the sky was all its own. The sky was all its own. And because it was in a vineyard, it likely means that that vine dresser, vines take a lot of work. It likely means that that vine dresser who would take meticulous care of those vines gave equally meticulous care to this fig tree. Aren't we people like that tree? Isn't the sky all our own in this place? I mean, come on, St. Simon's Island. Are we not planted on the best slope? What's the phrase we often hear attached to our neighborhood? I've never heard run down or high crime. I hear the word paradise. How many of us live on the nicest street or the biggest house? How many of us uh, spend days with full social calendars and carefully curated social media feeds? Do we not live in a vineyard? How many people take meticulous care of their yards in this place? And not just yards, roads. We're now paving roads. I'm not even sure need a paving. (laughs) We live in a vineyard that is meticulously taken care of. But how does this parable go? That fig tree that had everything, that fig tree whose had the sky all to itself, it bore no fruit. For three years, it had been barren. Hmm. Is that not our story too? How many of us, how many in this community are spiritually and emotionally barren? How many look for fruit within and find ourselves lacking? I mean, we'll do all the right things. We'll keep showing up. We'll, we'll keep smiling. But inside, there is that voice from our parable, that voice that we hear in our own hearts. What good am I? What good are we? Cut it down. Cut it down. Hmm. Thank God. That was good timing. Thank God that the God of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ, thank God that, that our God 
is not a cut it down God. You see, there's another voice in this story. It's an intercessory voice. It is a voice that speaks what are perhaps the most gospel-filled three words anywhere in the scriptures. There is that voice that comes along and it says, one more year. Our God is not a cut-it-down God. Our God is a one-more-year God. Do you know the power of those three words? Do you know the power that one more year has to transform lives and communities and the world itself? I do because I know Evan's story. One more year, that might very well be the phrase that shaped Evan's life. You see, back when he was in elementary school in the late 90s, there was a church, go figure, a church, on the other side of the river in downtown Dayton, a Presbyterian church, in fact, a church that looked over that bridge and they saw that neighborhood. But what they saw there was not soil being wasted. What they saw were children worthy of love. Families that just needed a little extra help. They saw branches that were heavy with possibility. And you know what they said to that that school, that neighborhood? They said, one more year. They started collecting supplies. They started sending church members over to, to tutor, to mentor, to support the teachers. Eventually, for almost two decades afterwards, they would bring those kids to their church two times a week to tutor and mentor. One more year. And when it came time for Evan to graduate from high school, when he was finding help nowhere else, his mother, an amazing woman, she called that church and she asked them, is there someone in your church who can help my son apply to college? And someone in that church, they raised their hand and they said, yes, but what Evan heard was one more year. And when Evan moved across the country and enrolled in a renowned school in Alabama on an ROTC scholarship, he spent that first year finding himself struggling, struggling to get his grounding, struggling academically, struggling to believe that he was worthy of success. That's the thing about generational poverty is often there is no example for what success looks like. And even when they are on the path, they struggle to believe it is even possible for them. And then the phone calls came and the letters were sent and the cross-country visits were made. And there it was again. One more year. And when Evan lost that scholarship after he and his girlfriend had a beautiful but surprise baby girl, and he had to take a semester off to be the childcare so that his girlfriend could continue her training to become a veterinarian, and he had no idea how he would and if he would be able to pay the tuition whenever he re-enrolled. That same mentor from back on the other side of the river said, I'll co-sign your student loans. One more year. 
And when Evan became the first college graduate ever in his family, and he moved out west with that life partner and their beautiful daughter where she found employment as a veterinarian and he struggled. Can you guess how long he struggled to find work? One more year. Friends, the God we meet in Jesus Christ is a one more year God. So we, we are called to be one more year people. We are called to be the ones who search out those who have been deemed beyond reach and unworthy of effort. Who are excluded and impoverished and overlooked. We're we're called to follow the example of Jesus Christ who does the very work of the gardener in this parable. Who gets down in the dirt of life. The very stuff of life. Who tends to the sick who nurtures the hungry, who gives voice to the voiceless. And we're called, too, to look within ourselves and ask that hard question, which is, who have we cut down in our own lives? Who have we decided are not worthy of our support or of our love any longer? See, we're called as one more year people to be patient, but not passive. To live each moment expecting transformation, both for ourselves, but also for others. We're called, in other words, to hold fast to that truth, that though time is not infinite. That's the hard lesson those poor Galileans discovered at the hands of Pilate. And those innocent souls under the Tower of Siloam, they discovered what we all already know. Time is not infinite, but we are called to be people who realize that though that is true, time is also not yet up. We're called to believe and trust and to live, to do. Remember what Amy Jo Levine said? It's not so much what it means, it's what it calls us to do. We are called to live as people who trust that God looks down and moves amongst us and sees no one and nothing that is without hope. Hmm. It's funny, the sermons that stick with people. I preached on this text three years ago. We follow the lectionary often in our church. It's a three-year cycle. During Lent in 2016, we, we had the same text on the third Sunday of Lent. And I, I preached that Sunday, and apparently people remember it because people still talk to me about that one particular sermon. I even had a member of the choir who came and, and planted a fig tree in my yard. And every time I see that fig tree, I think about this parable. I think the reason people remember it, though, is because of how I ended it. I pointed out we had just purchased a plot of land over here on the Delegal Drive side of the church. And I pointed out at the end of that sermon that on the corner of that lot there, there's a fig tree. A barren fig tree at the time. Not a single leaf on it. 
And I said to the congregation at the end of that sermon, I said, I hope we don't cut that tree down. We weren't quite sure what we were going to do with that lot. Still figuring it out. (laughs) I said, I hope we don't cut it down. I hope we nurture that fig tree. I hope we tend to the soil around it. And I hope that one day soon we might see it bear fruit. It's been three years since I preached that sermon. That tree, it's got leaves on it now. But I don't think a single day I have ever seen a piece of fruit on its branches. So what do you say, friends? Let's give it one more year. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.